you guys, I'm so excited to share this episode with you. This is one of those rare opportunities where I'm able to share a K-Chung episode on the podcast. This is from yesterday, May 20th, from the K-Chung Studios, 1630 AM, Chinatown, Los Angeles. I have three masterminds that you will be listening to shortly, all talking about various stages of the creative process. We have Sterling Meyer, an intuitive a manifestation coach talking about her book uh, and the importance of manifesting your future reality, how you can do that, steps you can take. We've also got Susan Hurwitz Arnson. She is a co-writer on The Tick. She's also an executive producer on Preacher, and she's on the show today to talk about her creative process, what it's like to work in the writer's room. And also, uh, we're here to save The Tick. It's no longer asked on Amazon to be on there for season three. So let's find a home for season three. Also, we've got Jeff Finn, who is a returning champion. We've had him in the studio before. He's created his phenomenal documentary, Before the End. He's right at the tail end of all this stuff, folks. He's right at the tail end, those of you who've been waiting for it. Yes, seven years is a long time to wait for something you're excited for, but please just know it's on its way. These are the tail stages. He's talking about the the trials, the tribulations, the joys. Uh, also, for artistic purposes, I've left in some of the the bumbles, mumbles, pratfalls, squelches, screeches, bleeps, and bloops, because I think it's important to show the creative process. So, uh, which means we've got some nice, fun additions. We've got a celebrity afterlife report podcast included. We've also got some nice words from our buddy Mickey Dolans, my grandma, and. What else we got? That's right, folks. Orson Welles and Andy Kaufman. So keep your ears peeled. You're listening to Inspirato Projecto on K-Chung Radio. So since May 16th, you know, is, is the date of when Andy Kaufman faked his death. <laughs> um, you know, and there's all this speculation that maybe Jim faked his death and everything. Was he, do you know of anything that you've read about of him being a fan of Andy Kaufman? I mean, for instance, who faked his death? Who, which one faked the death? Oh, the chronology? Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing is either one of those two was possibly, even in a tiny way, influenced by the other guy. That's fascinating. I've, I've done a pretty deep dive on that. I did it one point years ago. Just for fun. You know, I'm such a fan of both of them, as you are. Um, and so Jim, Jim was born uh, December of 1943. Andy was born January of 1949. So you're literally looking at, you know, uh, what, uh, a five-year difference. Like 
five years and a month to be female, which is normal, you know, when you're, when you're an adult. Um, and, and Jim became, you know, really successful very early on. I mean, he was in the early 20s when the first album came out in 1967. Andy, uh, I guess it could be argued that he, he hit his fan a little, maybe a little later, you know, not in his early 20s, but maybe in the mid-70s. Uh, with the Carson appearances and uh, Saturday Night Live and, and Taxi. Um, so he was a little closer to his mid 20s, late 20s kind of thing. Um, given that, there's like this sort of like a decade, uh, you know, between them. So Jim, to get right to it, with you know, he allegedly died July 3rd, 1971, in Paris at the age of 27. Andy, as you know, allegedly died on um, May 16th. guys like just dove so deeply into their own perspectives of what they were creating. They were truly creating the art form that they wanted to see in the world. It's funny because so many times with artistic creations, there's this idea of, you know, oh, what does the audience want to see? What does the audience want to see? Okay, let's look at the demographics. Let's look at, okay, what's, what are the hot button issues? Okay, let's power pack that into this thing that I'm making. Rather than going, I just feel compelled to do this thing. And it's indefinable, and I'm okay with that. Because it's what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, because I love doing it. So here it goes. Oh, and by the way, all of you standing in front of me are just a secondary audience. I'm, I'm perfectly fine just entertaining myself. You all here in the room with me right now are just sort of a secondary, you know, laugh track. <laughs> I'm going to do this thing, and you may or may not want me. <laughs> it's like, it's so so, like, diving deeply into what they're doing. If people had to lean in and see what the hell are these guys doing. I've never heard anything like the Doors. I've never seen anything like this, you know, Andy Kaufman comedian type stuff before. What the hell is going on here? It's completely, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, like, from whole fall, you know, like, how does that happen? Obviously, with organic, like you said, they, there were no demographics involved or any of that cynicism. It was, it was, it was genuine and original. Uh, whether you love them or hate them. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's interesting. Like, it was about a month ago, my girlfriend and I watched uh, the, uh, uh, I guess, the delayed uh, uh, viewing uh, of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. 
with the cure. Oh, and I love you. Know, I've always loved the cure, and Robert Smith is one of my favorite, uh, you know, performers. And and, and Trent Reznor, my engineer, was inducted in the cure into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow, which was really fun in, in and of itself to hear his speech. And, and you know, well, in the nutshell, what I'm trying to impart is Reznor said, you know, the cure, the cure did something like the cure did what all great bands do, all great performers do. They, they created a world, and you are you know what I mean? They created a universe. They're all the pure universe, or whatever you want to call it, uh, pure land, or whatever he said. <laughs> it was good. And, you know, this is a world, this is the universe they created, um, and you are free to enter, or leave, and check it out, or visit anytime you want. And that's, I saw that in that moment. I thought, you know what? That's what Jim and the Doors did. That's what the Beatles did. Stone, Hendrix. Yeah, stop it. Not enough. Like, I mean, you create your own, your own myths and your own legends and, and truths and untruths and, and a world, you know, and, and um, it's brilliant. And uh, it's interesting, too, because speaking of cameras, I just read a book about Laurel Canyon um, recently. And a guy in the book about Laurel Canyon said, you know, Dan Shoplin was uh, like a little old lady in, in real life. He goes away from that stage. Completely different. You said something like "believe in yourself," and I know like he knew her well, and implying that that was not necessarily an act, but a persona that Janet, you know, shifted into rock star mode on stage with the bottle of Southern Comfort and you know, singing like she was possessed. And Jim did the same thing. And I think any great performer, um, you know, cast into that. I love that idea of creating the world. I mean, that is such a powerful thing uh, because it shifts the idea of going, oh, well, no one likes me. How come no one wants to be a part of what I've got going on? Oh, and everybody, oh, why isn't anyone listening to me? Why don't I have a, you know, I'm just taking away that fear, that worry, that desperation, that, oh, everybody thinks like me. And, and transforming it and redefining it as I'm creating my own world. How exciting is that? I get to put what I want into this world, how I want to put this world. I get to, you know, like that's the thing. If you can entertain yourself wherever you're going, you will, like, you, you, there, there is no need for worrying about whether anyone's laughing at what you're doing or not, or paying attention to what you're doing for that matter, because you're so fully, so fully engrossed with this, this particular thing that you're creating. Um, my buddy Colin, uh, went to school with me. He's friends with the guy who made um, Adventure Adventure Time. Adventure Time. He went to school with that guy. And um, so this was a couple of years ago. I talked to him, and, and, he go, and he talks to the guy. He goes, "Do you realize, like, what your like, how your cartoon is influencing the land? Like, do you, do you, I mean, do you even understand how much it's adored?" And he's like. You know, to be honest, I have no time to look at any of that stuff. I'm busy making what I'm making. <laughs> oh, backpacks? That's awesome. You got backpacks? Oh, cool. Oh, you're making uh, masks and, and, and hats with these characters? Oh, you're... Oh, cool, guys. Cool. Let me get back to the anime. <laughs> it's like, just for a second, he's able to, you know, he let himself appreciate the fact that, you know, his art is influencing the world, but then he's just getting right back to it. Oh, it's like, not... It's like not spending a time reading the critiques, not spending the time seeing what anybody else thinks about this world. Because really, who really cares? What really, what really matters is the cultivation of their world and what's happening here. 
the cure? No one can look at the cure and go, oh, well, they sound just like these guys, or they sound just like those guys, or the doors. Oh, well, they, you know, I know of a million other bands that use the, uh, the keyboard as a bass. Oh my gosh, how cool is that? How innovative is that? They're like, we don't have a bassist, but we you know what? We'll use the keyboard as a bass. I, I think that's absolutely brilliant. Hello there. I'm going to, uh, we're going to go through something called the Celebrity Afterlife Report here, folks, and uh, we'll be back in 18 minutes. I think you shall enjoy it. It's going to be a lot of fun. We will be right back. This is the Celebrity Afterlife Report Podcast.
can't do that. Maybe you
about your favorite deceased celebrity, call 818-3-MY-DREAM. 818-3-MY-DREAM. 818-369-3732. Hi, it's Mickey Dolans here. You're listening to Inspirato Projecto. What else? 
question. We are moments away from. Uh, let me give you this. There's a trick to being a host, and I'll catch on to it before we're done. I hope you're enjoying yourself as much as I am. We're going to be meeting now somebody I don't know, except from the few, from one of the other shows, which has kept television from being a criminal felony. I think it's one of the shows. Taxi. He also made a very considerable name for himself before Taxi ever happened as a comedian. And he's a man of many personalities and surprises. God knows what he has in store for us now. Mr. Andy Kelly. They want to know where you're headed. I'm sorry, I just said that. It's feeling very well. Feeling very well. You want to talk about wrestling? Well, actually, uh, not anymore. I'm delighted to hear that. You don't like us? No, uh, but I've heard you talk about it. I said, I don't know this also. Yeah. So I thought it'd be nice to talk about you. Okay. I could talk about it if you want. All right. About what? If you'd like. I'll talk about anything you'd like to say. <laughs> I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by all the characters you do. And the other night I saw a fashion, a scene taking place in your in the native country, whatever, wherever it is, down to Libya, of, uh, of your, the basic character you play in Saxon. What is the name of that country? There is no name. There's no name. There's just better than that. Well, they call it Rockefeller. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what was so great about it? Did, did, did you see that scene? It was a whole, uh, it was like a whole feature movie in six minutes of uh, life and death in, uh, in Lower Slobodia. What was so great about it was that you played it very straight with tremendous sincerity. So you, you, were, you had Ibsen on your hands and not a lot of comedy writers. And it gave it a very curious lesson. Ladies and gentlemen, Exciting. We have some very exciting people here in the studio today on Cape Sun, 1630 AM, 10 Pound Radio. Um, so we have quite an array uh, of wonderful people here. First, we have Michael Sweet as our camera operator. He's been a, a guest on the show quite a few times. He wrote the book Infinity Diet. Make sure you check that out. That's on Amazon.com. We have Susan Hurwitz Arneson. Did I pronounce that correctly? He's going to talk about the tick and preacher and any of those other wonderful things that she's created throughout the years. We have Jeff Finn, who created Before the End, which is the Jim Morrison documentary. He's here today. And we have Sterling Meyer. She is uh, the, what's the name of your, your company? Is AOM, right? 
the name of the company is Get Your Life Now. Mm-hmm. And the product is AOM, it's short for the automatic solution. So it's a container type system that allows you to master the So, one of the things that we're noticing here is that Amazon did not ask for season two. So, what we would like to do is manifest into reality. I take season three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So, okay. All right. My hope is we have another 25 seasons. Please. That's not going to happen. Okay. <laughs> um, so, Susan, how long have you been uh, writing for the show? Uh, I've been writing for both seasons. Season one, season two. So, and you were talking to us out there about how they end up finding you. How they end up finding you and what the writers do. My agent. And in the classic old school way, where my agents, um, you know, all agents know what shows they're looking to staff. And um, my agents knew that this is something that I love and um, submitted me to it and thought you get me in. And um, then Ben read um, a sample of mine. I was brought in for meetings, and then it was really that much enough to learn the job. And you had been a fan of earlier stage creation. Huge. Huge nerdy, dark fan. Um, my husband and I, when we first met, we watched the animated series, because I couldn't afford cable, and it was on Fox. And I read the comic book, and I, I watched some of all of them, not watching all of the previous live action. Um, so, yeah, I've been a fan of the life long time. So, there's a lot of manifestation of reality. Would one day have a future self and be writing for another writer as well? I had moments of that, like, I can't. The first time I got left alone in a room with Ben after I got the job, I was like, I'm a nerd girl, but I was like, I'm not. And you know, Ben, talking about the tip is so. Surreal and weird and awesome and um, nerd girly perfect. So um, yeah, I got I got I got really lucky. It's really cool. I met Ben a number of years ago at Chicago Comic Con before I moved out here and I showed some of my art. It's really cool. He influenced me. His art. And it's just really cool. He's like, oh, you know, comes from these, you know, Prince Monson Day. And it's just such a great feeling to know that he was he was looking at my art. And this was before the cartoon had come out. Yeah. So like, Tell me, what do you do in the cartoon? And he was saying, oh, you know, one of the things that we, we have to show things in the cartoon that little kids cannot do. So we have to show if, if Chick's going to get in a fight with someone, he has to, has to pick up a mailbox and throw it at the bad guy. Something that little kids cannot do. So they had to be very careful with how they, how they did that. Now, with Amazon, you could go, all, go in all kinds of crazy directions, can't you? Yeah, I mean, the first season we were, um, we were a little, we went a little more adult. Um, but then we heard from a bunch of our fans, you know, we used the F word, we, I don't know, that violent or whatever. We were slightly darker. And, um, but we heard from a lot of fans that they had been fans when they were kids and they really wanted to share this iteration with kids with their kids. And, um, you know, if we could get rid of some of the F-bombs and, and watch the violence a little bit, I mean, and Ben was feeling that same way anyway. I think if, if Ben had um, been like, no, I have to do it this way, it wouldn't have happened. But, so yeah, so we really wrote this past season to be, certainly not like the five-year-old kid, but to be a little more um, encompassing of everybody. And it was great. Then I don't think it affected the writing or the humor 
what we wanted to do in any way because I could you know, say the F bomb as much as I wanted to being from New Jersey. Do you find that it's a lot easier to, um, like when you know, for instance, when you know that Amazon is just going to pick up the sale, do you feel like that, like, that's something you don't have to worry about anymore. You don't have to worry about funding or anything. Now you can just have a side of relief of like, okay, I'm just going to create what I'm creating. And we've got a playground here. Let's just go for it. Yeah, Apex always makes life easier and less stressful. Um, but yeah, when we, when we knew we'd been picked up for season two, it was, it was great because we could start thinking and laying out what we wanted those episodes to be um, and how we wanted to come in after the first season. Um, what we had set up in the cliffhanger from the end of the first season and how we wanted to make that play out in this season. So, yeah, it's always lovely to, to not be worrying about whether you picked up, but worrying about, like, what crazy can you create now. Much more fun. And it's so fun. And especially now, he seems to be moving. I'm noticing elements of more surreality showing up in the Unapologetic surreality. Where they're just not actually pointing out what's surreal. They're just, they're just living there. And the tip is perfect for that kind of thing. Because... Everything is done with no irony. There's no irony. They're, they're living in this, or it seems that way. It doesn't seem like they're calling attention to what they're doing. Like, oh, I just did this weird thing. They're just doing that thing. They're just doing it. Yeah, it's very much the, the, the fixed world. And, I mean, and part of the, the great thing about, oh, there's all the same thing. One of the great things about this version is how we, we keep the crazy, we keep the surrealness, we keep all the things that people love about the tip, except in the tip, but it's grounded in really um, three-dimensional characters, a lot of heart, a lot of love, um, and a lot of, of truth to go along with the crazy. So because of that, you never, you never feel we're making fun of superheroes. You never feel we're making fun of our characters. We're living in a very real world of the city. And um, I think that's why our fans love the show is you, you love that there's silly and there's, 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 there's a giant lobster, I mean, for God's sake. So... You know, uh, love Hercules. It's hard to say. Love Hercules. Yeah. Um, so we have, you know, we have giant lobsters and renegade threats and all these superhero-y things, but at the core of it, you know, is, is real people that are fighting the sort of real stuff um, in this crazy universe. Um, one thing, thank you so much for the knocking. It's revealing your kids' face. Thank you so much for not showing this face. Thank you so much for not showing this face. So many times we see these... Jeff and I want to get to in a second, but like we're always like, Curtis, why did you have to have Spider-Man keep his mask off again? You know, he's a superhero, he's got secret identities, you know, like, why why put the mask off as often as you can? I didn't take it off or inside his face. Right, right. So, we know the answer, Ben and I know the answer, um, and some other people that have worked on the show have an inkling of the answer, um, which is why we need more seasons. A lot of people have an answer. But yeah, no, I don't think, I think it's just, um, we've, we've talked and joked about, because he's just British, uh, that I, Peter Stark, I don't know who plays the tip, is British, that it would be fun to do a, so you can get out of the the speed is, is, is difficult. It's hot, it's constrictive, it's the newer speed, is better, but I think it's very hard on Peter to talk about creating an alternative character for him where he could be British and not wear the suit and um, still be on the show. So Jeff, uh, you were you were also a fan of uh, of the tip, right? You had seen the tip. Yes. Uh, 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 comic book, uh, comic book from nineteen seventy five onward. Uh, I started reading comics when I was a little kid. Famous superhero stuff. So 
stuff like that. Here's why you want to have a close to the thing. And uh, I, I thought this would be a fun segue. We were talking off, uh, off camera earlier, uh, off mic, as it were. Um, I was a huge fan of Simon Carrick, uh, Bob Burton, who later did The Mystery Man, which was adapted in one movie years ago. And I always wondered if the Flynn Carrot was an influence on the kid. And uh, I, I was telling you I dreamed of like a crossover with the kid and Flynn Carrot, so you couldn't have a dream. Yeah. And uh, also in the comics, in the Flynn Carrot comic book, it was often hinted at that the Flynn Carrot's identity was. Oh my god. Yeah, see, I'm really not at all yeah. Oh my God! And then they take a secretly Andy Kaufman. How cool that be? It turns it all into everything. Just it all makes terrible films turn out of head upside down. So um, you can, you can. It's interesting because here we have a world where, where the the, um, the dance floor is kind of made up for you. You can, you can, you can plug and place. Go in there and create, create the, the stories that you want to make. The funding is already there. Now we have another aspect, an independent aspect, where you have just in your, your own job from just doing what you can, piecing you know, together this documentary through the years, you know, meeting tons of, you know, hundreds of people across the, the globe to talk about Jim Morrison and whatnot. Yeah, uh, we, we joke about it, you know, it's like a punk rock talk, you know, punk rock filmmaking, uh, obviously it's not actual punk rock, but in the sense of DIYs, you're do it yourself. We did a Kickstarter years ago, and, uh, funding from wherever we can cobble it together. So that's been part of the long process right there. You know, also not having a, a huge crew. It's very much uh, independent, truly independent production. Um, but the fans like that, and it's long because, you know, you're getting unvarnished truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we sort of the film, which is now a docu-series, started out as a two-hour doc, it's now like a five-hour mini-series. Um, you know, as, as the unauthorized documentary that they didn't want you to see. Because if, if it were authorized, everything would be all airbrushed and whitewashed. And, you know, so we're going for the truth. We want to know who the fuck was Jim Morrison? Who was he really? Um, the media brand, you know. Um, who was the real person? You know, there's a thrill from creating what you want to create and seeing it out there in the world and then seeing how that affects the populace. Huh? So, Stoney, you have, uh, you know, you said your own, your own company, you decided that you're going to put your, your superpowers, I love this, we're talking superheroes, and you put your superpowers to the test, and now you're influencing all kinds of people across the nation. Could you talk a little bit about your, about your journey? Yeah, sure. Um, let's see, well, I started out as an actor, I went to Arsenal High School, had a career in acting. That led to an opportunity to get a deal with Interscope Records. That led to music. And um, the fun thing is, I took a break from touring when I came back from a European tour. I took a break. I was tired. I flew. Listen, I did great stuff. had a great time. I needed a break. So I took about a year off. And um, during that time, I was just licensing my music to movies. And had not a lot of things going on. I had all this free time, so I was helping friends and family with a system that I had started devising in '98. This has been a lifelong hobby, passion since I was 13 years old. 
and I picked up psychocybernetics. You know, what is life? Who are we? How, how do results get created? You know, and I just figured, I understand all this stuff, but I can have a really good life, you know? <laughs> you know, I, that was my best insurance for having the life I want and having access to it. So I started, you know, creating this, um, this system as early as that. I, I tested it. Um, with myself as a journal, just like a scientist, you know, I logged everything, you know, here's my experiment, logged the results, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And came, you know, at the end of all that, after about a few years, I came up with this system. The last thing I reflected on it was speed of velocity and producing results, intentional results. So, I did that, and I tested it with a group of about 14 people. This was while I was still doing music and things like that. And I worked with them for an entire year. People had lists as long as this. Like, I mean, lifelong lists of what they wanted to accomplish in that year. I told them to play they go for it. And at the end of the year, we pulled out all of that, all the lists that they had. And 90 to 95% of everything was accomplished. It was unbelievable. It was incredible. After 165 days, I stepped down because it was time to go tour, and I didn't want to, you know, leave the group in London, but it did continue. And people were finally to get in and everything, so it did continue. We call it like kind of dreams fulfilled. So then, like I said, I came back and had this tour, and I started like helping friends and family, and then next thing you know, word of mouth spread, and thank God I already had an office. That was, that was my own personal office, and I like to my first client in my own reception area, you know, because nothing was set up for that business, but it just, just overnight like that. And from that moment on, I haven't stopped and with that. It's been full time. It's been crazy. It's been awesome. I just finished a book. Um, it's an OK magazine, which I'm going to get a copy of when I get back to the office today. I'm sorry I couldn't bring it by. You see that it comes up today? But it's not on the newsstands. Well, I went to the newsstand. It seems like they have the May 27th out. So I'm like, what's going on? So, yeah, it's kind of funny. But anyway, it's for me. Yeah. So if you go to a nail salon, you'll probably find last night's edition. No problem. Then you can see it there. Um, so, so, yeah, it's just it's really grown. And it's, I mean, it's so fun. Oh, my gosh. You know, do I miss music? I love the creative process. Time is a concept. Time is something that we put into place. 
So if we take on the possibility that time is not a factor, so what's interesting about each of these stories here is that each of you are following your heart, creating what you want to create, and you're seeing some extraordinary results because of that. Following your heart, I feel, is so much of an easier task to do than to try to climb up a mountain. You know, a lot of times you're like, well, maybe I'll get there, maybe I'll get there, and you think like, oh, I'll just climb up the mountain and sooner or later I'll reach that summit. And I just feel like, it doesn't have to be defined like in the mind. It can be defined, oh, what's that sound I hear? And maybe I just walk in that direction. This is what I, I play with this, you know, with the, with the various things that I'm creating or the various things that I'm working on. I just love the idea of going, okay, I say yes to something, and we'll just see how, it, how all the blanks go and how it all works out. Um, did you, when you were sitting there in those moments and you were sitting there talking with friend Edwin, and it, were you thinking back into your brain of all the times where you were excited watching the tape or the times where you had conversations with people and you're going, holy cow, this is like, how could I ever have predicted this moment in time to happen? Oh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's not going back through it. It's, just, it's in the moment and all that other stuff sort of lives inside your brain and your heart and, you, and it's just, you, you get stuck with these sort of snapshots of your life in the moment where you're like, it's just, Crazy, like it's great, and it's crazy. I had had another where we went to um, Amazon. It, it's the whole press thing that they do every year when they introduce shows to the press. And um, Amazon had this party, and I, I had this perfect nerd girl moment where I left my job at Creature to go meet Ben Edlin, who then introduced me as his partner on the fifth to Neil Gaiman. Like it was just like. Everything I love falls into this one crazy nerd girl moment that, like, um, yeah, that was the same for a long time. It's a true, uh, it, it's, it's, it, there are distinct moments. You know, I had it when I, I landed the job on South Park. I had it, you know, with everything that I landed with something I've been a fan of before I've become um, a working part of the, of the thing. Um, there's always that moment where it hits you and sort of catch your breath and say, holy shit, okay, and so fucking lucky, and it's pretty great. Like, you can't, uh, it's, I think it's very important to, to remember that, like, it's still pretty cool to do what I do, you know, and there's some moments that are cooler than others, um, and some are realizations of me, so. So now, to go along with this, this idea of manifestation of reality, you have an extraordinary story that you had told me concerning when you first arrived to Los Angeles and you parked into a hotel or a motel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I first moved to Los Angeles from um, uh, Chicago, down in Sierra Leone, actually. Um, I wish there were for someone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, that was the Labor Day weekend in 1981. I was 20 years old. I packed everything into my Ford Escort and uh, did, did the drive out there. And so I was on the road for three days and that kind of thing. I was just gross and gross and exhausted. And I'd never been to Los Angeles. Uh, and I, I, you know, I had some Rand McNally map on the front seat with a highlighter the way we did back then. We didn't have smartphones. It just sound really old. Which I mean. And, uh, and long story somewhat short, I finally got to LA. I was following the map and got turned around and lost. And I ended up uh, uh, on Los, what I now know as Los Angeles Boulevard. 
and uh, saw a little vacancy sign with an arrow, and I was exhausted. I was so grateful that I pulled into the motel, and I had this instant sense of deja vu that I had been there before. And I thought, well, how is that possible? I've never been to California. And within, I don't five, ten minutes, I, I sort of came out of my fog, and I'm looking around in you know, the motel parking lot, and it hit me. I was like, Oh my gosh. And I, I reached into the back. Everything I owned was in the car in Boston. And I had a bunch of books and then a couple of boxes. And I found my um, copy of No One Here to Talk Live, the first biography of Jim Morrison. I'm thumbing through it. And there in the book is a picture of the exact motel that I pulled in. Well, that's And I thought, what are the odds of that? Um, awesome, great, and that was really fun, and, and that was the beginning of the I mean, it's a motel that Jim Morrison. Yeah, Jim lived on and off for the last two years of his, his life, uh, his resorts, uh, rehearsal space, recording studio, offices, everything was at that nexus for Santa Monica Boulevard and La Cienega, West Hollywood. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, the motel is, the motel is still there. Years ago, I, I I asked my ex-wife to stay there with me. She thought we were crazy. She said, well, what if some crazy door fans come on the door in the middle of the night? I said, oh, come on. That's not going to happen. But sure enough, like four in the morning. But yeah, that's how it's been. People say, oh, that's great. They also see them again myself. So, so Sterling, you know, one might say because they were excited to make you know, uh, had visualized these moments in time and really had such a um, a strong bond with these that they ended up showing back up in their lives. Sure. I mean, you could say, I mean, there is an intention, there's a vision that you're creating, okay, right? And then it's mostly that frequency, if you will. You know, and that synchronicity will start showing up, the right people will start showing up, that kind of thing. When you think about the manifestation process and how you actually produce results, actually quite simple. It's only four steps. Yeah, guess what? We've been complicated things. It doesn't have to be this hard. The first one is a thought. Yeah, so you have that idea. The second thing is there's an emotional reaction to that thought. An emotional reaction is either going to say, yes, great idea, let's go, which then opening for action gets produced. And the final one is the, the manifestation of the result, the outcome. But what happens is somewhere between the emotional reaction or seeking um, the action, the second or third step, usually something goes awry, that then doesn't allow the overall thought to be reflected in the physical world as a result. Because the emotional response might be, Oh no, I can't do that. I'm not good enough. Or, oh, you know, I'd love to, but no. Okay, so it can go south that way and not come to fulfillment. Or maybe it's like, yeah, I'm all fired up. I really want to do this. It's really so right for me. I'm excited. Da da da. I'm ready. And then you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what. How am I supposed to go find that person that I need? To find, you know, that I just thought would be a great partner for this or that. And then you, you don't know what action to take, and so you just stop there, you just stop there. And then the more you try to figure it out, and the more that you try to become really cerebral about what action you take in the right action and all this, you just like, you multiply, you know, your stopping, if you will. So, 
So noticing, you know, there's something to transform if your thought and your emotions are not insane. Okay, so you know, transform that if that's going south. Figure out, you know, ways, many ways to do that. And then if, in terms of, like, how you remedy what action you take, take any action, just don't be attached to the results of that action. Does that make sense? So just take any action, any action. Because in a way, when it is, and here's a perfect example, have you ever been waiting for a phone call or something like that? You're waiting, you're waiting, expecting it to come in, it doesn't come in, you just sit there forever, finally, you go, you know what, I'm going to go to the grocery store or whatever. And at that moment, you've got your bag, you try to open the door, and everything's phone blows up, and everything's calling, and this and that, and you're like, oh my God, what's going on? You're like, what now? Why now? You know? And it's because you're at your most, you're at your most active. You know, you're, you're, you're busy. There's, there's movement. There's energy there. And it's attractive. Yeah. And it's bringing in it. There's a buzz, if you will. So we want to stay in action to create that buzz, if you will, and maximize. So knowing you're doing that will also help you not be attached to the results. You know, am I taking the right action? Did I get anything out of that action? Don't even concern yourself with that. So what are, for instance, this is what I'd like to do. Take what you're, what you know about, and what you know, what you're tuned into, and how do we apply it? First of all, to, to both his before the, to his documentary, and making sure that all runs, you know, runs smoothly, everything's cool. And then second of all, applying that towards this tick situation in finding new home, for instance, for the show. How can we, how can we take that and go and and, and plug it into? The yeah, it's interesting because you and I were talking about this. We touched on this the other day. And, um, you know, how, how do you, right, do that vision and put it in someone else's mind and not going to see the same business for the show, you know, and pick it up and then receive it and all that. Um, and I think definitely one thing would be to do is to really see it, okay? And I, this is great. This is, by the way, this is great because I have a great share for you with one of my clients. It's very similar. Okay, so so one of the things is you really do want to spend the time really seeing it, really experiencing it, creating an experience for yourself of what that's like. Maybe, you know, take a meditative moment, you go down and you imagine, there I am sitting in the room with the people, da 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 and we're getting along, we're like, oh, we're laughing, it's great, everybody's in accordance, everybody's like, yeah, I get it, I get it, everybody's like really connecting here, you know, and, and they're, 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 they get it, they get you, they get that whole idea, they see the vision, and they connect with us. So that's one thing you can definitely do. The other thing that I like to do is kind of like a step up, if you will, because um, it's a little more in depth. And that is to imagine that you're actually, let's say, it's Bob, it's one who has to decide a lot of things, a really important, prominent figure is Bob. Imagine going into Bob's mind. And imagine, like, what it is, <laughs> where Bob lives and resides, and how he must think. And his concerns, maybe. So putting yourself in their kind of energetic space. Imagine, you know, you can actually do this. This is, um, uh, you know, you're talking into energy. And so you remove yourself and kind of put yourself in that place where Bob's mind is at, what very much you can do with your concerns are, and then answer to them. Answer to them and imagine what could, what could you say or and, and, and experience it 
energetically. Does that make sense? So kind of, yeah, in real time, as you're doing it. Okay, I'm having a conversation with Bob. It's mine, but it's just his other side. You know, and you can actually do this. It is powerful. What happens is that person, Bob, would say, you know, has this sort of moment, that spare moment, where he's not, you know, where we're not really, really cluttered in our mind. We have that kind of reflective moment. And suddenly, the two come together. What you are conveying and what his concerns are or where he's thinking, all of a sudden, the two can connect. And there's, there becomes this connection. It's really powerful to stay with it. So I have to quiet as an actress, and that's what, you know, she does basically the same thing as what I told her to do. So when she walks into an audition, she walks in, like, okay, we're already understood, like, I've already got the job. She kind of thinks of it as, like, I'm here for the, the secondary meeting or whatever, and it's already a done deal. We're all in agreement. And when she does that, they just go, you're the one, you know, <laughs> you got it, all this stuff. And so it really works powerfully, and she gets all of our auditions this way. Cool. You know, she does her work as an actress and everything, but she goes in there, and, and, and it all just comes together, and everybody's on the same page. Um, you know, they always say that they want, the customer wants to know that you're that person. They want to be convinced that you're that person. She's kind of really doing that. Don't worry, guys, we got this covered. I'm the person. I'm the, I'm the guy. I'm the girl. So, um, does that answer the question? Yeah, I know. Cool. Awesome. Good. Well, okay, so here we need to. What are we doing here? I'm amazing. I'm just you just want to make sure everything runs smoothly, you know, like whatever, whatever footage he's got for this movie. Right. Is that Well, he's working with uh, some lawyers right now trying to work out some things to get, to get it, like, past, mm-hmm. you know, like, where everything, all I can see is, is cool and everything. Ah, I see. Okay. Well, my colleagues would be, you know, I'm assuming that not here to your clarifying information about his life or alleged death. I'm also dealing with an alleged death. You know, did you really die? Which sounds like urban legend stuff, but I mean, I've been, I've been listening to research this for so many years now. Um, it seems highly likely that he didn't die when he just died in July of 1971. So, uh, his life, as I often say, his life at this point sort of resembles Terrifier's story. He's the Stories that have been passed down and passed around for so long that they've mutated and morphed. You know what I mean? There's no, no one knows what the original truth is anymore. So I'm up against the myth. Um, you know, the, the tagline for the film is one man, countless myths, and in between lies the truth. So I'm trying to get to that truth. And it's just been a massive, massive undertaking to the long process. And, uh, it's still with me right up to the very end because I'm at the tail end of the, the work, you know. So I, if, if you're trying to fizzle away, uh, like I told Kurt, it's like, a, like imagine a giant, uh, you know, piece of charcoal, you know, or a lump of coal that you're trying to chisel into a diamond, you know, to get to the truth. And uh, it can be all in one. Yeah, because there's so much speculation on the subject. There's so many ways you can go with this. There's so many interpretations, none of which are invalid. You know what I mean? So um, it's like reading 
you know, Raymond Barrett's uh, uh, version of the doors, and then John Densmore's version of the doors, you know. None of them are invalid. It's just a different perspective or experience of it. Um, you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna find that as you're as you're carving out your diamonds. Um, you know, and and so open yourself up to any and all possibilities, knowing that there's not really an accurate answer. Um, because of so much speculation, because there's so much wide possibility around the subject matter, Jim Morrison. Um, uh, uh, have you ever heard of a guy named Kristen St. Kristen St. Clair? Or Kristen Clair? One of the other So, he is a documentary uh, filmmaker on the subject. Um, he's a very interesting one on Jerry McFarland, the jazz pop. Uh, Viagra, almost in the 60s, uh, really interesting on this guy who was curious in circumstances in 1972, around there. I should put you in touch with him because maybe, I don't know, you know, it would be interesting to kind of not, well, you know, you probably have a lot in common and could probably talk about some things or whatever, so I'll definitely do that. Yeah, it was very interesting documentary that he did, and it's kind of good for him, really, so that's how I kind of stumbled upon it. Um, but, uh, so, so I think crystallizing your vision is the most important thing. You know, you, you know, are you still in the process of that? Yeah, it's actually continuing right up to the very end of, of the process, you know, where we go to sell the film. Um, it's, uh, it's such a personal vision because I ended up narrating the film. In the beginning, I was going to, uh, my goal was to hire Henry Rollins to narrate it, or Grace Blitz, you know, someone like that. Yeah, you're back. And, and Rollins was open to doing it, but it, it was a personal quest of me sort of studying Jim Morrison's life on and off since 1985, which I have done um, when I was 18 years old. And I never believed in God. So, so my thought is very different. I'm most talented about the door and the rock program. Mine is about Jim. You know, the door is a part of And I'm really focusing on, again, who, who was this guy as a real person? Not just the, the rock star we all know, or the rock god, as they say, you know. He certainly was that, a rock star, but I'm trying to get to the, the flesh and blood person. Yeah. Good. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'm addressing the, um, the original question, <laughs> you know, but um, I'm not sure, but uh, it, it, I get what you're saying, is that, and this is great, because how much is out there about just the singular person, you know, um, and it brings to mind somebody, uh, something, okay, I, I see, oh, it'll come back to me later, but, um, Oh, you know what it reminds me of? Um, just remembered, I just read, uh, uh, I believe it's called Pieces by uh, Sally uh, Field, her latest autobiography or her only autobiography or anything. And I'm reading this, and it's really interesting. I'm like a lot of autobiographies. It really is about her. It's not so much about being an actress or movies and the co stars and this and that. It really is about her life journey. And I thought, wow, that's really refreshing to read that in autobiography. And so it's, that came to mind when you're talking about what you're doing here with Jim Morrison, which is great because I think a lot of people are going to be very interested in that. You know, um, Sharon Tate's sister tried to do the same thing with the book on, on, on uh, 
Sharon Hayes and wanted to show who she was besides coming to the Nicholas, you know, killing and things like that and, and the connection to Charles Manson. So I, I applaud you for that. I think that's great. There's not enough of that going on. There's always these things connected to the person. Really, a lot of times people just want to know who that person was and why they, how they live their life and why they live their life the way that they do and the choices they made and what made them them. I want to switch gears here to make you think. Um, did you ever imagine a tip documentary out there? Uh, uh, I was at South Park when I did the documentary there, and I hated every minute of it. Um, for, for those of us who are behind the camera, we're behind the camera for a reason. So to have a camera in your face is crazy. You know, Ben, I mean, honestly, any, like anything has to begin and end with Ben Edmund. So, you know, I have no idea if Ben ever thought about it or somebody has thought about doing it or, um, I guess because we're still seeing it as such a living, living, breathing entity, something that we want to keep, um, you know, making new versions of, well, this version of, um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, for me, no, it's not my thing. Um, but uh, sure, I think it's a it's a cool thing. Ben's a, a brilliant, um, just amazing human being and a talent. And, like he sits there and doodles when we're writing and thinking a story, and his doodles and his drawings are stunning. And it makes me angry because I have to just sit there and think and write. I don't have this other thing I can do in the room to help my. Um, but he's, he's beyond being a tremendous human being. The guy is so talented, um, and he'd be a fascinating. He would be a fascinating subject. And the trick, of course, is that's a thirty-year lifespan. So, um, yeah, maybe somebody should do that. You know, he uh, still makes the trick comic. Um, the only comic that does it, other people write and draw. Um, yeah, we can use kind of a new one. We've got to this week. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, they're still around. Um, the only comic is who was the original publisher. They're still publishing them. Um, and I don't know if Ben actually has anything to do with, with that side of it, but I do know that other people write and draw for it now. Are there particular, um, like, do the writers in the right thing? Ever go through the old comics and go, oh my god, this is something that really, really, really need to see up on the screen. No, I think that um, as background for some to work on this, it's good to have that um, that love of not just kicks, but of, of the comic book world because the kick is a reflection of that world. Um, that's why he was born, that's why he still exists, is he sort of mirrors and makes you look back at the comic book universe and the characters that have it. Um, so, we, I mean, in this version of the we really have focused on um, building out this new world. What is the city now? Um, what is this giant comic book explosion of heroes meaning to the kids now? Um, and how does that define who he is in, in 2018, 2019? Um, so I think it's an important thing to have in your pocket and in your brain, but um, we don't really refer back to move forward a lot. You know, we have a lot of fans that want, you know, I will say the number one request we get is for Joe Face Chippendale. And 
it's, we've talked about it. We've sincerely talked about it. It would cost us a fortune to do because it's a man with a chair for a head. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's the ethics budget. We have no trouble with the ethics budget for a talking dog. Um, so, you know, all that stuff has to balance out with the show and also Ben's vision for how he wants people to see his universe. Um, so the things are there, they're part of our DNA, we're respectful of it. We want to use some of it as we go along, but I think the plan was just to sort of establish this new version before bringing in anything from our past. And we did bring in something from our past. Um, if people knew the comics and actually knew the animated series, we brought in Trekazov. Uh, um, this season as a cliffhanger, which now people hang forever if we don't find a new home. But we were starting to find a way to thread through our past into what's our present and our future. Where can you best imagine that it's continuing its life? Uh, you know, it's, I, 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 anywhere for me, it's like I, there's not a specific place. I, I can't speak for where Sony, who's our, our partner um, studio on it, and it's just been an incredible partner for us. Um, I can't speak to where they're necessarily shopping. Um, for me personally, I just want to go someplace where they feel passionate about it. You know, where they love the kids and they love the show as much as, as Ben and I do and as much as our fans do. Um, to find a place that, that values what we're doing is the home I would like us to find. So whoever that is, give us a call. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you have dreams of your characters? Does that ever happen when you, you wake up and you're like, oh my god, I, I figured it out. Well, that's, that's when you get stuck in this episode to tie these little things together. And I, I'm, not a, I'm not a person who, um, I don't know. I have some of my best ideas when either I'm waking up from a nap or falling asleep for a nap. I like to nap, um, and so I had to sort of take care of some stuff in my own writing or if I'm solving a story problem. And I think it's very common to start to, it's, it's sort of what you were saying, you sort of let it go and stop trying to wrestle and then just sort of live with it in your brain and then your brain will pop out the answer. And I have found that happens. I haven't found that with the tip, but I have found that with um, searching for my own ideas and other problems that I've wrestled with in terms of figuring out story or character or things. What, what, uh, do you have other feature films, other short, other things that you're uh, that are marinating back there, waiting to be emerging from the shadows? Um, I have, I, you know, uh, my agents are always on me to um, develop my own stuff, and uh, yeah, I've some stuff that I've written um, right now because I went pretty much straight from production in New York for three or four months to coming home for a few weeks and then straight on to Creature. And then to Australia for two months for production. I haven't had a ton of time to sit in my own brain and in my own sort of like what the stories I want to tell. But yeah, I, I have my own stuff. I have an idea that I'm trying to chew on right now. You know, I have spent a lot of my career uh, writing for male driven shows. And I'm a female writer in the genre world. And I would like to write the continue to write with great female female characters in the kick and the end. That was, you know, largely because, you know, Ben was the component of that and also because I, it was very important to me as well and they fought for it. Um, but I want to have something where, you know, in this crazy genre world of strong female characters that are sort of really well-rounded and 
that's what I'm working on today. I want to gain two pounds. <laughs> but it was a few Now, how's about how do we manifest uh, reality where there's a preacher and tick crossover? Now, that would be next to you, Jesse with the Word of God. Yeah. Sixteen nine. Nine. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. I don't know. I mean, how do we know if soul? I would assume it's soul because he's so in tune with destiny and um, he's such a good soul. But uh, I mean, human. No, I love this one. This is such a good thing in the universe. So you think he has a soul. Jesse could only control him if he has a soul, but he doesn't. I don't know. I don't know. You could go in circles for a lot. So you just got back from Australia not too long ago, huh? Yeah, And yet time doesn't exist either, right? Time doesn't exist, and yet time travel is real. So, so Sterling, have you uh, decided? That, have you thought about getting into like the world? Of, um, you know, I know that I know that you're writing books and stuff. Have you thought about taking what you know and implementing it into characters? Uh, for instance, writing a screenplay that has characters that, that embody some of the ideas that you have? No. <laughs> So you uh, you said that you also make music. Uh, 
when you make your music, are you infusing that with the things that you know about? Are you really? Um, you know, no, I, I'm not really writing any music right now. Okay, but what's interesting is I look back and um, a couple of things when I started becoming public about this work and working with the public, I was still doing music and. It was very unsettling at first because I was like, who am I? You know, it's like, what's my identity? What, what do I do? What am I here bringing to the world? You know, it's just not a conflict of interest, but it's just like two different things here. You know, how are people going to perceive me? Who am I for people? And I started thinking about it and I was like, okay, first of all, when you look at it, it is the creative art, the creative art is healing, and it's all the creative art. That which is healing, you know, anything that's creative is healing, like whatever is artistic. So I thought it would be the same thing. And I also noticed that a lot of my songs had messages in them. I was really into message driven songs and stuff because I wanted you to think. I wanted you to get something out of it. I wanted you to see, have a realization, and some clarity in your life. And like, have it really move and touch and inspire you in that kind of way. Of course, there's fun songs too, who doesn't want to fun. But um, so I don't realize that I was actually, a lot of what I'm doing now is more direct, and it was kind of more indirect through the artistic, creative, musical vein, if you will. Um, so I realize that a lot of what I'm doing is the same, and that I'm just, I feel the way the way is now, I'm just going straight to the heart of the matter. And so I haven't really changed. It's more just part of that unfolding journey. Um, in a lot of my songs, like I said, have messages and things like that. But then you've got other musicians too, like John Lennon and stuff like that. You know, you've got Imagine. There's so many songs, and it's a lot of the Beatles songs, of course, are, are very philosophical and very much truth driven and very enlightening and things like that. So it's all one. So it's intriguing to me the, the process that people go through when they're creating what they're creating and the influence they have while they're creating this thing. Um, you were saying before that you get a lot of your ideas with three posting for writing your wake up in the morning. Um, and then you were saying you, 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 know, you got your own stuff that you're working on. Now, throughout my life, I've always written down all my ideas. And I have the idea book that's got titles and character names and song and things, and, you know, all that stuff. I can imagine you probably have quite a few idea books. Do you find yourself looking and going, okay, ooh, here's this little nugget we can plug into the tip, or we can plug this little thing in the preacher or whatnot? Um, it's interesting because it's just, um, ideas like that are, are my own, and they stay in my stuff. You know, I, I have, a, have a mantra when I, when I work on a show, and, and I learned this at South Park, because it's not about me, it's about the show. And it's a, it's a release of writing that can be ego-driven, you can get caught up in um, imposter syndrome and all that other bullshit that um, makes it hard to be in a room. So most ideas for a show, when I'm on the show, I focus on the show and will come. I don't generally try to bring my stuff into it unless something is so like, you know, um, I'm driven by the show I'm working on, therefore that'll be a big part of my brain will be the, the original thing that comes into it. Is sort of being steered by my showrunner and sort of what the show is. But I do keep um, computer, I'm not in the book, but uh, computer because I have legible handwriting. And I, if I write something down, I might not be able to remember what I wrote. 
um, so or read it. So I picked up on some papers that have ideas, um, and mostly they're for they're, they're long runs. They're what about if there's this or what about that or things like that um, that could lead to a, a show idea or a movie idea or things like that. Um, so I, I went to Columbia College and I made a wonderful education in ensemble, a wonderful education in yes and a wonderful education in give and take. Everybody gets to turn on the right, you know, and appreciating one another's ideas and figure out how to implement it and grow it together. What do you think? I, I know what I truly love when it comes time to collaborating with people. It's that yes and spirit. It's that this person has a wonderful idea, cool. That person has an idea. How do we how do we blend together with peanut butter and jelly? What do you think are some of the most preferable uh, writer's room kind of situations to be in for you? Um, non-competitive, supportive, not ego-driven, um, have the same mentality about it's not my joke, it's not my story point, it's not my this, it's what's best for the show. Um, it's working with people who like to collaborate, who are cool and laid back, who like the same places I like for lunch. That's important. Um, you know, I really, I find that there's a couple of things that I, I have a couple of pet peeves in a writer's room that I think a lot of writers might have. One of which is when people cut you off when they're speaking and you don't get through your idea. Uh, the other is when people pitch something and the showrunner says, no, for me, you get one more shot at that. If you really feel like it's there and they're not seeing your idea or you didn't feel like you articulated it, and then you got to let it go. You know, and people that will come, that will push and push and push and push, push. They're right, they're right, they're right, they're right. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that are negative in a writing room for me, but um, for the most part, it's like we're all there trying to make a good show. And um, yeah, it's, it's when, when people really embrace the collaborativeness of it and are respectful of the other person. Whether you, you, if, if you won't always love everybody in the room, like in the bigger the room, the more the chances there's going to be one person in your own country face. But um, you would hope that the showrunner, in knowing the show and who they are and how they work and how they run a show, is going to piece together a staff that's going to dive on a certain level. And it, and it usually does. Um, you know, it, it, sometimes there's a person who doesn't and, and you deal with it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's really keeping the ego out and keeping uh, your agenda away from what's best for the show. Is what makes the system because when other people are on that page too. How do you think there's a process of going? Okay, we get all these ideas. Let's let's get them all out there. Let's look at them all. Let's figure out how they fit together. Is that kind of similar? Because I'm trying to envision in my brain what that's like to sit in one of these writers' rooms. They're 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 they're, they're unique beasts. They're usually uh, driven very much by your showrunner. Um, you go in and you know you know how many episodes you have, and you, it depends on if you're a, 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 like a South Park or a new episode of a week and it's sort of a sex classic, whatever, or you're something like like a murder of the week or whatever. But but when it's our South storytelling for a season where everything sort of flows from one episode to the next, like features like figures. Um, you sit and you, you talk about each character. You talk about um, who they are, where you want them to go, overarching story ideas. You talk seasonally. You talk, and then you, you get into the nitty gritty of, of breaking each and every episode. So it's 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 less throwing everything up. I mean, creature we we started this season with um, what's left in the comments that hasn't that we think fans would 
want and what do we want? You know, where are our characters? Because these are our characters. But, you know, and, and part of it was, is this the last season of Future? Is it not? And, you know, once we really looked at what story we had left to tell and um, what journey there was left for Jesse to take, um, it was Sam, who was the absolutely brilliant creative showrunner, um, who, who came to the decision that, no, after this season, it's coming. You know, it wasn't dictated to us by network or studio. It was decided by story and character, which is brilliant. Because now we know we're writing for that. Um, and completely off the question on the ground. Well, I can imagine it might be crazy in a different situation when you think that you might have another two or three or four seasons, right? And you got the whole thing, and they go, oh, okay, guess what? You're, you know, you got two weeks left or, or whatever, right? That's the thing. We ended season two on a cliffhanger for our Superman experience character. Um, and we left some stuff up in the air with some other characters, you know, stuff that's there but not that full cliffhanger, but like you said, you want to know what's going to happen for these people that you care about and that boat you care about. Um, so, with Creature, what was hard was, you know, knowing you were ending it and then realizing, oh shit, we have a lot we have to do in 10 episodes and, and trying to to do it all as, as, as well and as organically and as fun as possible. And then I was in Australia for most of the time they broke the final, final episode. And that took um, a lot longer because, you know, you want to you land your season series finale and kind of huge game of thrones. Um, yeah, you want to land it and it becomes very important and it's very pressure driven. And, um, but yeah, it, it definitely was a, a different kind of pressure, but it's, it's, it's nice to know how much space you have to write the story you want to tell and if you have to tie it up. And we weren't able to do that on the tip, which is, you know, really frustrating. And, uh, Sad for us and, and very much sad for us. Well, well, for now, at this moment in time, as we look at this illusion of space and time, as we uh, play around in this holographic universe, uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there are so many more stories to tell with, with that. And even if the show ends on a cliffhanger, what's cool is you know that their life just keeps going. <laughs> Who knows what they're up to? They're doing some cool stuff right now. You just kind of imagine your own episodes. But uh, I, I, I totally. I believe this thing should go for another 25, 25. <laughs> um, so, so, Jeff, um, in addition to doing documentaries, you also write, too, right? Oh, yeah. You also write, do you have any screenplays uh, in Britain? Or? Uh, I've got some treatments riding around. And, uh, the main thing is uh, I have a couple books in that I'm hoping to get to once uh, my tenure with you. Post-human, sort of thing. Um, but it's interesting, you were talking about your mantra earlier in the writer's room, and I'm a big fan of mantras. But, uh, with, with, uh, before the insertion for Jim Morrison, it's been um, a David Lynch quote, and I know you and I are huge Lynch fans. Um, there's an old David Lynch quote I remember a few years ago where he said, uh, Everything is a mystery, and we're all detectives. And I love that. And so it's one of my words to live by, my mantra every day working on the film, because even though the film is a very personal vision, like my, my you know, search for Jim Morrison, literal and, you know, um, otherwise, uh, it's interactive in the sense that I want the audience, George uh, fans, Jim fans, whoever, maybe they're new people to Jim Morrison, you know, 
I want them to sort of uh, function as uh, fellow detectives with me. You know, um, I may be leading the charge, you know, the orange hair detectives, but we're all in it together. You know, we're all trying to figure out who was Jim, why was Jim, how was Jim, where, when, all that good stuff. And so that, that link quote uh, is, is really needs a lot to me. You know, it's looking at it. I think it's good to have <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good mantra for sure, you know. Mantra, um, yeah, I mantra it all the time. Whatever is going on, I need them all. I'm five. There's, I mean, there's so many facets to life. Why not one? You know, so, um, but it's interesting that you should say something that, was, uh, uh, that you mentioned about when you were talking about really getting into the psyche of who is Morrison and the fact that he was very determined to live all of life in 27 years and be done with it and be gone with that comet in the sky. I would describe it to Ray Monday. Mm-hmm. Ray was playing on 88 years old and I'm going to be like that. And you were just touching that quote. You you just recently touched me that quote, didn't you? I want to be the comic discoverer. Yeah. Oh, look at that. Look at that thing. Yeah. I think he was a hugely important figure in culture. And if you do that, it's easy to cast sort of the cynical eye, you know, at this race stage where there's a million rock bands and, you know. But in the 1960s, I mean, there really there weren't a million rock bands, and Jim was sort of a new. Creature, so to speak, so called him. Um, he wrote a book called The New Creatures. And, uh, you know, this is the time that one of his friends reminded me. Uh, he said, You know, in 1966, if you walked down the street and you were a guy with long hair, there's a good chance you were going to get your ass kicked or you were going to be ridiculed or, you know, it's just, you really don't think about it today, which so much is excessive, thankfully. But I think Jim was a trailblazer in that regard, not just with hair length, but. Yeah, he was, he was uh, walking that razor blade, you know, when, when those huge changes were being uh, brought about in the 1960s. You know, he was one of the firebrands, and there were many, but he was definitely one of them, and one of the biggest ones under the, you know, the rock, rock and roll band, or rock band, or whatever you want to say. So, um, I think it's easy to forget that, and, and now, because I'm 52, I meet young kids who are like, who's Jim Morrison? Who are the Beatles? Like, they don't know who the Beatles are. They don't know who Elvis was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was a huge influence on Amy Pop, who was a direct influence on the Sex Pistols and the Ramones. You know, it just, it, the lineage is fantastic. And, uh, and Jim took a lot of views from Mick Jagger and Elvis, you know, the sort of a cultural handoff, you know, the passing of the torch. But yeah, Morrison was, you know, in a lot of uh, circles, he's known as the godfather of punk, the godfather of soft. Alternatives, whatever you want to say, uh, he, was a, he was a key figure at a, at a huge moment in history, and I think that's getting sort of lost in the shuffle when a whole new generation doesn't know who the Beatles are. Well, you know. I think Jim Morrison's favorite singer was Frank Sinatra. The crooners, you know, that crooning thing. And he'd be listening to them, and he'd just tell them to scream. Yeah, totally tell them to scream. He's holding those notes out. Oh, yeah. And he's drawing you to Right. This is really cool. And his favorite band is the Beach Boys. Yeah, he's like the Beach Boys, the Pink, and the Law. 
their tone is so unique in themselves. So whether you've written for something else, you can be written for something else as a superhero. Um, for Tick, it's such a strange combo of things that I think it is at times it's difficult for writers in the room um, to, to sort of get their head around and, and voice. So I don't know if any of the top writers would say it's harmonious. <laughs> it's uh, it's a unique piece, like every other show. Um, it's a very hard show to write um, because of the depth of character, because of the storytelling um, for uh, all of it, and the, the humor and the heart. It really is difficult to, to write and to break the stories. So um, I think it's I think it's a room that. Forces writers and pushes writers um, to, to find different ways of hearing and seeing and thinking and writing. So, in that way, I think it's great, but I also think that's also think it's very difficult. From getting psychologically into the minds of these characters, you know, we hear about this that happens with uh, a lot of actors where they inhabit these characters so much that that, that that sort of energy is around in their brains and it takes a while to kind of shape that. Do you find that? Um, Maybe some of the stuff happens with you, with with Preacher and or Tip, where you're like, oh my gosh, this is totally. I'm looking at this thing through the Tip's eyes right now. Or, oh, I'm looking at, you know, you, you overkill. What are we looking for? Well, you always kind of overkill angry. What is overkill saying? Start with angry. Okay, no, that's what kind of overkill is going to say. No, you know, because you're, 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 unlike an actor who's living within the skin of one character, for you as a writer are changing that. And voices and thoughts, so you're you're jumping. Um, I think we all have favorites. Like when I was in South Park, any um, Cartman or Butters episodes were my favorite when we worked on them because their voices are so distinct, they're so clear, they are so who they are. Um, I think on Pitch, um, you know, you, you're jumping around so much that you have to be in every character's head. But you know, Dot was a special mission for me this season. Um, Valerie Perry is this incredibly talented actress who can play shit on her face that I haven't seen people be able to do. Um, and she really brought, you know, in categories of the she's just this sort of lumpy sister who stayed in the background, this sort of kind of useless female character. And, and we never wanted that for Dot. So, you know, I feel like I live in Dot a lot. Um, her sort of, her anger, her issues, her dealing with her own about that childhood, her, you know, I spent a lot more time in Dot, I think, this past season. So, her, yeah, I think this part would be in that. But, well, and, you know, when you wrote Arthur, because the, the whole episode, one of my episodes where Danger wrote his PTSD and walked down and said, kill everybody, you know, Arthur connects to him about grief. And I had recently lost my best friend um, suddenly. And so I'm writing an episode where two characters, one's a sentient gay vote, and one's in a CPA and a lawsuit talking about grief and PTSD. And um, it's a very true moment that we let breathe as a real moment. And then you're like, I'm crying. I'm really upset about a boat. It's a boat, and it's a character on a So um, you have different moments and different characters, I think, where you are living in that character. But you jump around, which is cool. You don't have to all these, all this, this whole community just looking around in your brain. This whole community. Holy cow. So, um, 
Now, if you ever want to get into, uh, I know you don't want to be, you know, featured on, on a camera, for instance, in a documentary about the kids, but I can imagine you have a lot to contribute towards that. I mean, are there other ideas? Have you ever helped out with any other uh, big documentaries or anything like that? Yeah, the only other documentary that I've, I've been a part of was when they did the South Park uh, Six Days to Air documentary. Uh, and I'm in that, and I filmed this in the writer's room and briefly interviewed. Um, and I was, I remember the day I went back to the room and it was done, done. And then it said, 60 minutes is coming in tomorrow. And I was like, oh my God. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, some of the wanted to pursue this documentary and wanted to talk about my experience. I'm always happy to talk about my love of the, the pick and the fan and the being a part of. I mean, that's the cool thing for me. It was the South Park it is with Tick, is to be, um, you know, a link in this sort of pop culture phenomenon that's lived such a long life and has touched so many fans for, you know, decades. So to be part of that and being able to help create in both of those worlds and, and help with that legacy has been brilliant. So I'll always have stuff to say about Tick. I'll always want to be a part of and keep a part of that, for sure. I love how through, through fact and fiction you can really inspire the populace. Right? Because who knows how many, the tick is like a cult. It's like, you know, it's like the equivalent of a cult film, I feel. Uh, you know, that comic just, it was so nice and so unique to see that kind of language going on there. And, you know, the stuff that you learn there, like, you're, like you just said, you know, why am I crying? There's this boat and there's this guy in there. I'm crying about this moment. But you're, you're implementing, you're infusing this really real moment into this. And it's just great because that can change people's lives. Sometimes it, it depends on what tactics you're putting it in for somebody to really truly understand what it is. Um, if you wanted to get into any sort of, uh, or I don't know, superhero films or anything like that. Wow, I've never been asked that question before. Because <laughs> you're saying you're, you, you did acting. Yeah, you know, what you have. You know, it's funny, you should ask. Oh my God! Totally reminded me. All right, listen to this. So, I first when I first started uh, music, and um, I had the first first thing I had was a development deal, and um, I had two deals. I started the first one was a development deal, and at that time, I, I decided I was going to create this character that um, that was a superhero. Yeah, and I, I studied uh, my comics from the 70s with these, these heroines in these outfits. And I don't know where I found this information, somehow I found it. And I don't know a whole lot about the background of these superheroes, but for some reason that, that period, like it was like 72 or something, they, had, they, they just really looked awesome. So I took some of the designs from some of the drawings that I saw, and I had a costumer make me those costumes. And so there was a snake um, in the shape of an S in, on, on the flap of this outfit. There's a flap. It's a very definitely S snake on the front. It's all silver. And, and then um, and there were these leather black bands and this, like, silver tube top and these, like, leggings and boots and stuff. And super hero-ish. And a cage, a little, a little cage. 
thing. Well, actually, it was more like, more like wings or little shells go on your shoulder. So it's a little bit like you know, oh, it's made of spawn. And um, so I had the story thing. And then I went and I found somebody who drew up a comic character of my character. Yeah, he was so talented. He was incredible. Uh, can I have a I love it. Why can't you So it was almost like, I just feel like it was almost like because they drew you in the superhero vision, in a sense, you even had more to kind of visualize. It kind of kick started it. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of kick started it in the action. Mm, yeah, I know. I could see that I wasn't aware of what was going on at that time, really. Well, you know, the reason how that stuff is like when you look at those elements in your life, you know, those little benchmarks in your life, you yeah. oh. I remember the first time I came across a tech comic, for instance, or I remember the first time I, uh, you know, first started realizing how much I appreciated co- coincidences and synchronicities and stuff like that. Oh, I could be the first time I heard this song or that song. It's interesting how those benchmarks, and then how you see how they loop back around, how they echo back around later on in life, and then the camouflage that they kind of they take at that moment. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because it's like... <laughs> We spend too much time trying to figure things out or make sense out of things in the moment. When instead, if we just have really connected what is genuine and authentic for ourselves in terms of a vision to be true to ourselves and really practice having faith and replacing doubt with faith. You know, I had a client just before I saw you today, and we talked a lot about that because she had just left her job in the financial world as an accountant or something, you know, she said, that's just not me. And she's like, I, I made that break. And actually, I was let go of two months ago, and I decided it's an opportunity for me to really pursue my creative and, you know, what I truly want to do. And we had a big discussion about faith. And this is that opportunity to act on faith. And if you do that, you will be rewarded. And if you know that you're doing something because it is truly 
is what keeps you, it is truly what you believe in, even though it doesn't make sense on how it's going to come together. You got to have faith in that which exists, but nevertheless, I mean, that which you can't see, but, you, but nevertheless does exist. You have that faith in that. So stop going by the way things occur, the way things look. Well, it doesn't look like this is going to work out. You know, stop going by that, allowing that to inform you. Instead, just be true, have faith, go forward. Don't create any attachment meaning to those circumstances that arise. That arise. They are fluid. They are, they are malleable. They are not set in stone. There's no such thing as anything is permanent. Nothing is permanent. So, so I know it's easy to go, oh, this looks like this is impossible, or I can't move this mountain, or I'm stuck here forever, or I can't get out of this situation, or to, you know, and come up with these excuses. Um, and and it's absurd. You can't do that. So, I think the important thing is to go for what it is that you truly feel is right for you. And, and know that it's going to fall together, it's going to come together, and don't pay too much attention to what it looks like as it's not falling together. It's interesting because there's, you know, when you're inspired and you have ideas, and those ideas are the things that pull you more towards creating the idea. It's almost like I feel like the ideas go, hey, hey, you know, and then I'm just going, what is that over there? What is that? And if I just simply follow it, then there's the idea that then we created the thing. It's like it's like we hear a song right now, we just keep following it. We're gonna eventually end up at the episode where that, that sound is coming from. And as I keep playing with that idea, I'm going, oh, where's my instinct leading me now? Oh, where's my instinct leading me now? And just see where it goes. It's crazy when you have the reservoir of ideas of examples in your brain where you've seen it pan out, where you follow your instincts and you stay true to it and it leads you to this like, oh, we go. And then you have a whole reservoir of these, these instances that you've built up where it's worked out for you. I mean, gosh, it just keeps encouraging you to just keep following those instincts. Something I want to ask you with your, um, what? Regular mantra, because it's not about yourself, the show. My personal mantra is bet on yourself. Because I had a lawyer say that to me once when I had a screenplay that somebody wanted to option and turn into a TV show. And when I said, and I was in phone call time, and had to have any TV experience. And when I said, well, I want to write the pilot, and he said, no, we just really basically want to steal the ship. And I said, what do I do? Because I'm sort of a, a semi-day producer. And, and she said, do you feel like this is, you want a page? And I said, absolutely, we want a page. And she said, well, you believe it's really good work? I'm like, I believe it can be, you know? And uh, she said, well, then uh, my advice to you is bet on yourself. Don't give it to them and bet on yourself. And that's what I did. And then that script, usually there's a script that um, helped me get my, you know, I got a producer patch and helped me get my first agent. That script went out in the world. That's a script that led me to getting my job at South Park. Like, it's just by me holding on to that and betting on myself. I love um, And that's just in my personal one. Whenever I'm caught between two things, or I go with this producer's idea or something on my own, it comes down to, okay, well, bet on myself. Mm-hmm. That was a good 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, that it came from a lawyer is a little fascinating to me, too. But, but it's, yeah, it was just as a, as a writer, you're, especially this perspective from success. And even in the beginning, when you're vulnerable, you don't really understand the business, a lot of people come at you with their ideas and their things and their sort of ways of defining their ways of things that they want you to, to do. And like, hey, this, I have this idea, I have this idea, we have this, and it's production company that you really want to. And I got very caught in that net and dragged my career down. And I, I finally, you know, once realizing that I could stop pursuing them and, and bet on my ideas and bet on my writing and, um, and my career and my writing. And so that, it's pretty free once you start doing that as a writer, and, and really, when it comes out, you do something as, as a rule. Either it's like, well, Steven Spielberg's coming out with something, I'm going to consider it, whether I love the idea or not. The other only other way that I'll consider it is if I love the idea. Other than that, I'm always going to bet on my own stuff. It's my best writer. It's so interesting because uh, there's so many, you know, there's so many folks working in 95 jobs, and they're working, there's, there's that phrase that says, if you're not, if you're not making your own things come true, you're working that someone else's dreams come true. And, um, and I think to myself, these people who work in these nine five jobs and they're working in their day in and day out and they're, you know, getting squeezed, you know, for overtime and all this stuff. And they're getting athletes, they're getting promotions, but they hate their job. They're getting paid a lot of money, but they hate their job. They're getting all these awards, all this stuff. If these people are going to get accolades and awards and promotions for doing something they hate doing, just imagine how even more phenomenal that energy was put into doing something you actually love doing, and imagine how much farther that steam can carry you. Um, you know, doing what we do, and including you, is that we all, we all are okay in a certain insecure space, right? And that insecure space is a belief that. Um, I can make my way in this world without following a specific path. That I trust in myself and the ability to, to to do this. You know, there's a lot of writers that go out there and have that and don't. But it's for me, it's like the ability to, to hit your head against the wall and get back up and then do it again and then do it again. I live in a, a career that's full of rejection. Um, but I don't think a lot of people are comfortable. Um, you know, just letting go and and, and trying to. To do that, and for a lot of reasons, you know, they, they want a house, they want to have the kids in the car, and the, you know what I mean, or they're not, it's not your personality makeup, and I think that, you know, that's, everybody's path is their own. Um, to do creative things for a living, I think you have to be born with a certain sense of, um, it, I'm going to be okay, and, and, and I trust in that, um, and be able to live in insecure moments and be okay with that, too. Because there's a lot of insecurity. I mean, like, I'm down on tip, I'm down on fusion out. I had to fire my agent because of, you know, the, the Raiders and the media fight with the um, ATA. So I, I suddenly am back unemployed and, and, you know, back in that insecure space. I trust that my experience and my contacts and, and my ability will carry me through, but you have to be okay living in that. And I think for a lot of people, um, the 9 to 5 at least, even though it's, it's artificial to a degree because the company's a you get fired tomorrow, you get a new boss, any of these number of things that happen, there's still a degree of support in that. I think that feels really good to people. And, you know, I think that's a different path. Wow, that's interesting. You say that because I mean, we think about how, first of all, there's this perceived security that comes in with working in a corporate position. It is 
it is just that it's an illusion. Um, it is not the certainty that people rely on it for, that people sacrifice for. And, uh, yeah, I mean, when you are doing something as an entrepreneur or you're pursuing a dream um, that, you know, you're, you're, you're the number one person behind, at least initially, um, that it, it takes something. But, but also, I think it's, it, it may not come with that feeling of like things are going to be okay. Maybe it comes with like, oh my gosh, I have done what isn't right for me and it remains physically ill. Or maybe I've done what's not right for me and I was lost and displaced and disconnected and, you know, I'd rather eat right and live in a tent than feel like that any longer. Um, I, I remember I had a friend of mine who, who had a, a lifelong career at Saxabell. They were making over $100,000 a year. They had a great 401k plan and all kinds of things like that. Um, these people were dedicated. They did their 30 years, 16 years, 20 years, 25, 32 years. And then overnight, just like that, they went from making that hundred thousand plus and bonuses and all that to making about twenty-four thousand, thirty thousand, twenty-four thousand, thirty thousand, somewhere around there. You know, not only was the morale go down, but so many people got ill. So many people took sick leaves and absences. Um, so many people became. Very addicted to food, drink, and pills. Um, very much angry, very much competitive with one another. They just kind of had this edge like they just ready to fight. They didn't know how to put, where to put this hostility. So they kind of projected it onto each other and all this stuff, you know. And, and then at the same time, if you ask them, well, what are you going to do now? You went there and they're like, and it was like, I'm resigned to this lot, and I don't know what else to do. I don't know where else to go, and things like that. The possibility of leaving this because they never entertained it before, you know, and there is no possibility, you know, and this is what I got. Well, what about maybe you can do this or maybe that? I don't know because I never entertained it. So, all I'm saying to that is that. That is absolutely no reason to perceive, you know, uh, uh, security. There's absolutely no reason to actually sacrifice your your life for. Um, you have to be true to yourself. You know, you do. And what's interesting is if you do take that with the faith, you'll start gathering new evidence that will contradict your belief system that you previously had that was in place. And how do you live the life that you live? You're going to start with experimentation. If you approach life as an experiment, then it's, it's much more fun and it's not disappointing because it's an experiment. You know, you're just experimenting. Well, what would happen if I do this? I wonder. Hmm. And then you can gain some value in something that, that makes that experiment worthwhile, some value out of it, whether you produce results or not as intended in your experiment. So that, you know, there's always a prize. You know, you either 
wow, you bull guy, or you get this consolation. I think that, you know, that you can benefit from as you move forward. So, it's, you know, I think that that's, that's what, you know, you want to bring that approach like, to that, that experimentation. Um, then you start realizing that, oh my God, the more that I act with faith, or even at the 11th hour, I still stand true to what I believe in. You're going to win. You're going to gather that evidence. You're going to be forever transformed. That's it. That's how you change your belief system. It's through these experimentations and gathering newfound evidence. I suppose it takes a little bit of, you know, wanting to file things that things then, I guess, following the sort of a, the, the program that's presented to us, huh? I guess the power is experimenting with something outside of the matrix that, that, that uh, is kind of around us at all times, huh? Yeah. Going, okay, what's what's different about this? How can I experiment with this? A lot of times we hear about the idea that we, we could possibly do a simulation. We hear about the idea that it's just a holographic universe. Um, it, allows us, it allows us to be an observer. And, and to step back from our lives so we're not so reactionary if we approach life as an experiment. Plus, like I said, if you find that value in it, then you're not going to be left with disappointment uh, with your results. So mm-hmm. It's not going to be that disappointment because it's like, well, I, I think, you know, you take that approach. Imagine where you got to go in your head to become a better than that, you know, venting a light bulb. You, what, how do you think? Mm-hmm. Imagine yourself being that, you know? And if he was driving himself crazy with his quote unquote failures, he never would have hung in there long enough to produce the result he eventually did. But instead, he probably got some value out of each experiment and said, wow, okay, got it. Now, this, this equation doesn't quite work. What if I typed it? It seems like the missing element. What's missing? Not what's bad. What's wrong? No. You know, give up that. Wrong. It doesn't exist. It's just a concept anyway. And look and see, like, well, what's missing? You know, when we do that, it's so much easier to move forward. We don't get slammed down in life. We're unstoppable. I, mean, I, you know, I love hearing stuff like that. And, I, and what's even more exciting is applying that kind of information. When I, it's funny you said that because I've been, I've been treating my life as if I'm like. Sometimes I'll be like the scientist who's looking at what's in the petri dish. Sometimes I'm with them in the petri dish. And so when I'm playing with, you know, being in the petri dish, I go, okay, we're experimenting. Let's test this out. Let's see what happens. And uh, and then to see how that, like, okay, let's knock that little domino over. Let's see where that goes. Let's see how that, you know, what's the what's the consequence of that action? What's the consequence of this playing with this idea? And then when I, I it's fine when you see what happens when you when you base it on the idea of, okay, I have a strong idea in my mind of, I don't know, one day getting, let's say, reflective glasses. And then all of a sudden, two or three days later, someone's like, oh, look what I found on the ground. You know, look, it looks like something you might like. And then they hand them to me. And I'm like, aha, there it is. There's that thing. Would that thing have appeared in my hands had I not put that in my brain? It's almost like the chicken, which comes first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. Would you ever play those uh, experimental with your life in that fashion? Mm, no, I, I mean, I'm, I, I, not really, I don't think. 
definitely have an A side to my personality, an A type part to my personality where I want to control things. Um, but one of the great things about doing what I do for a living is that I can constantly be creating a world for myself with my writing. And so I think it, it, it might manifest itself in, in that way. Um, all right, well, you know, I haven't got a job on a show, and somebody's coming at me with something I dig, so fuck it, I'm going to create my own stuff. And so I think that's sort of my version of it. Of, uh, as a writer, you know, we, we create products for a marketplace, and I think can change my tomorrow by what I write today. So that's, I think mine has a more um, tactile, hands-on, less thought-driven in that way and process attached to it. Are there those times where um, maybe you had an idea that you were just holding off and saying the writers and you something, and then someone else, all of a sudden someone says it? I mean, especially in the writers and when you're all sort of digging your brains around the same problems and issues and stuff, you know, it's like you like to think you're super original and <laughs> great, but you cross over with other talented people, so, you know, a lot of times you'll cross over. Or you'll come up with the original thing. It's, it, it, it happens. Or you come up with an idea and then you're working on it, and two months later you see that, you know, Netflix just bought something and you've been working on almost something identical. It's just the nature of the business. It's like there's, but, you know, the reality is that nobody writes something like I write something. My voice is my voice. My writing is my writing. So, how that person, you know, gives two people the same thing. A woman finds a dog in a park at night tell me a story, they're going to come at you with different stories. Is that a horror story? Is that a love story? Right. Is that, you know, a children's book story? Is it, you know, any of these things? So it's, um, you're always going to be your own, you're always yourself, and you're always going to have your own stuff, even if, you know, Netflix won't say that you're <laughs> It's still, you know, you do run into it a lot. It's the nature of doing something creative for, for a living. Well, I can only imagine if you're in the same room, you know, uh, I guess, Kind of to, when I was saying earlier about the harmony, if you're digging around in the same kind of brain of the character and, and this person has that idea, you know, that you're about to present to the, I would think in that moment, if you've got two or three more people who, who are kind of thinking about that idea, in the writer's room, you guys usually end up going, yeah, you know what, like three of us had this idea. Let's just go ahead and go with that idea. Yeah, I don't really you know, as much as it's a, a collaboration, it's also a bit of a dictatorship where it's, there's at least the shows I've been on. Um, it might be different on other shows, I don't know. Um, but where um, where we can... <laughs> where... Uh, ultimately, the showrunner decides what's best. Oh, gosh. You know, so um, that's how it usually works and how, and how they want to go. So the two or three of us having the same idea might mean that we're on to the right path. Um, and two or three of us might have an same idea, one person says, and then some person goes on top of it, and then we come up with something that's sort of like a chance, you know, we all come together with something bigger and better, like the Power Rangers, but um, ultimately that, that core decision-making of how we go, where we go, is down to the showrunner. Right, so, real quick, because it, it looks like we, we got a skedaddle out of our station, as I said, but I just want to say really quick before, before we... We, we go. I want each of you to be able to tell folks on the air right now what can they do to help bring even more awareness to the tip. Uh, there's a petition on Facebook where it's called Save the Tip. They can take a social media hashtag Save the Tip and join our lunatic army. Um, we're just trying to keep our presence out there to so let 
potential new homes know that our fans are passionate about the state and the show continuing. So their voices uh, matter a lot. Thanks. Yeah, what about you, sir? What do you do? Uh, you know, I appreciate, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I've been on, I think, at least a half dozen times over the years now. I appreciate it. It's a blast. The best outlet right now is probably the official Facebook page for before the end, searching for Jim Morrison. Uh, that page has been up almost since day one. Um, uh, there, there is an official website for the film, which got hacked recently, so I wouldn't suggest going there for the time but, um, uh, but yeah, Facebook's uh, a great venue, and I, I greatly appreciate all the fans, uh, like I said earlier, the patients and support there and the Lisbon project. So um, that's pretty much it. Thank you. I love to call it thank Some Yacht Rock Classics 70s and 80s love songs by all your favorite folks like Holland Oates and Toto and McDonald. Check us out. Um, who knows? Who knows who you might find out there on the dance floor? Might be too free for me. So, uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening. Thank you all for coming in, you guys. Thank you so much. And, uh, 